This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And this week marks the return of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. And when I say it like that, it makes it sound like it's been gone longer than a week, when the truth is we alternate it (laughs) every week, a week on, a week off. I have to. I have a grave announcement, though, really, and I know this is going to be sad for you, Eric. What's happening? The truffles that I was eating during our last recording sessions are no more. So the sugar and chocolate-fueled well, lectures... It's been several weeks. One could hardly expect you to still have <laughs> truffles on hand after all this time. Well, they don't last very long in my home. I will say that much. Truffles are an endangered species around these parts. But I will say that my mother sent them to me as a gift because I finished a top-secret project, which I cannot speak about in any detail at top this time. Top-secret truffles! The best top kind! secret truffles! Apparently, um, Queen Victoria ate a lot like you do. Oh, yeah? <laughs> truffles and fear I was and anxiety? Watching <clears throat> Just as fast as she could. Uh, <laughs> that what's the? Go ahead. Go that ahead. was Talk apparently the they were doing. I was watching a special about her wedding last night, and they were talking about Albert sitting next to her for the first time at the table, and her eating, and him trying desperately to keep up. They said he could have like one glass of wine, and then he was. He had to go to bed and she could drink, you know, everybody under the table. <laughs> was that was that a Victorian tradition that you had to eat at the exact same pace as your wife? No, but he was just realizing that he could not really keep up with her because she could really yeah. power through some food as fast as they could bring it. And he was really like having to like pace himself. Apparently, the Victorians believed, I don't know if it's true, I'll have to try it. If you put a little dab of mustard in your ear, it Ugh. it deadens the nerves that would tell your stomach that you're full and so you can eat longer (laughs) just what oh my god was that covered in the special or is this from your font of no that was covered in the special that was one of the advices they were saying that in the victorian era um they really served large amounts of food it was a you know big celebratory thing to do and people enjoyed eating like what else was there to do no fun well, also that, and no you didn't radio, want to no waste television. any of that food on the poor you know right. you didn't want any of the poor to get any of that food you had to I, eat it real quick i guess that's yeah. probably part of it yes they might um right they might you know get all uh, energetic and ask for stuff and <laughs> like and rights yeah right. um so yeah there was that and um uh so they would uh they would do all kinds of tricks to try and keep themselves like the Romans, you know, eating the, mm-hmm. as much as they possibly could because, you know, it was going to be a long dinner and they wanted to participate. They didn't want to drop out sooner. The other thing was that when the queen was done eating, everybody had to be, everybody was done. When she put down her fork and her knife, they cleared and every you were through, whether you'd finished your steak or not. And mm-hmm. they were saying it was a problem because she ate so fast. Like I would have starved to death by now if they took my plate every time you were finished eating. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I come from a background of hardship where we had to fight for every meal and everything was really difficult. I'm just going to let tough. that be out there because I think yeah, you just everybody else can laugh at that for themselves, yeah. knowing full well that you were the prince of the manor. Um, mm-hmm. I believe little Lord Fauntleroy was the term that you once used for me. Right, Eric Shaw Quinn? Fauntleroy. That's actually what my father used to call me. My father also used to call me the Dauphin. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, 
Eric Shaw Quinn, I'm so glad you started off this episode talking about history because it just so turns out that the True Crime TV Club we're doing this week is also going to take us back into the past. And if there's anything my OCD heart loves more than a good segue, it's eating fast. So I thought maybe since you are such a fan of the show A Crime to Remember and we are going to be talking about one of their episodes this week, I thought you could give us a little sense of how A Crime to Remember operates or how it's structured. Because this is, this is the second episode of this show that we have done. The first one was about the bombing it's of a passenger third. plane. It is? We did this a, is the uh, third episode. The episode where the whole family was killed by the campfire. That's not A that Crime was, to Remember. That was the first crime to remember that we ever did. No, that was um, a case that ha- the case that haunts me. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that was that was um, contemporary. I thought that well, was the actually, same. Actually, it thing. wasn't. It was like the '70s. That murder was in the '70s. Yeah, I thought it was the same thing. I I guess you're right. That is though. It was the case that haunts me. You're right. I mm-hmm. thought those were the same ones, huh? Mm-hmm. So I guess it really was. Yeah, and you're right. This is more similar to the the airplane crash one than than the other. There's a narrator, and it is. It's sort of like um, Desperate Housewives. It's a narrator who really <laughs> is never seen or has nothing to do with the story and is in no way involved and isn't a real person. It's just a sort of theatrical way in which the episodes are framed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she speaks in this one as if she's close friends of everyone who is all the real people that were actually involved in the crime. And like she might also be from Houston. Yes. And the the central players are from Houston in this one. I will say the re, you know how I am about the reenactments. Reencraptacular is a word of my invention. The reenactments in a crime to remember are really a cut above. And I think wait, you may be thinking the case that haunts me is similar, is because they also had really that, high quality. That is why I thought it reenactments. Yeah, that is why I thought um, they were the same. I will say this. And we can get into this. I think that we were pulled in by the synopsis of the episode. Oh, my God. Yes. But part of what pulled us in turned out to be a bit of a red herring, I thought. And we can talk about it when we get there. And maybe they addressed it a little bit too neatly. And maybe it's still an open question about the case, oh, but I think it, it is. There. I think it yeah. is. And I have asked me about it and I'll tell you what my theory is. Key Biscayne, Florida. It's a 20-minute drive over the causeway from Miami Beach. And at the time of this crime, which I believe was 1964, uh, it was considered a more refined community than Miami. It had the sense of a gated community. In the words of one of the special's interview subjects, and Eric, I wanted to ask you if you know who this guy is because I think his name is very familiar. He's not connected to the events of the case. He's more sort of a commentator, and his name was Lewis Lapham, and he was the editor of Lapham's Quarterly, which I, I feel have like I've heard about. no idea what that was. I was wondering at the time, but unlike our last uh, foray into True Crime TV Club, I did not break the, the vow and go look up <laughs> details about the case, so I didn't go find out about him. I don't know who he was. It seemed to be sort of like must be some sort of gossip rag or something. It was yes. a, it was a very odd sort of like the Lapham Quarterly. What the fuck is that? And I know, I don't know. I've seen maybe it. it's I've a respected a piece of, of journalism. I really don't yeah. know what it is. I I think and this is also the interesting thing about a crime to remember is because the crimes are pretty dis pretty far in the past. This one is the '60s, not that long ago. Um, many of the central players see how it happens. You start around. getting older, and time doesn't seem so far away after a while, huh? Oh God! <laughs> you know, it was the 75th anniversary of Jaws the other day. It was the 70- yes. or 85th. Was it 85th? Right? I don't know. You saw I it in don't the know. Theater, it, was, right? it came out like the year you were born. So like, <laughs> it, it was not. the year before I was born. Before you were, I born. was born. Born three years after Jaws came. I was born the year Jaws 2. So are you 82 now? Yes, I'm 82. Okay, well, Um, then there you are. It was the 85th anniversary. So the people who are interviewed are usually, they're, they're less emotionally manipulative interviews with grieving relatives where they push in and close up and ask them the most painful questions, sort of the dateline thing. And they're more sort of detached commentators and critics and all that sort of stuff. So I think it actually makes for inter- more interesting and objective interviews yeah, about the it's case. more sort of um, Dominic Dunn. Right, exactly. So it's late at night. We are at the exclusive Governor's Lodge Apartments in Key Biscayne, Florida. 
Um, we open with a, a disturbing reenactment of the discovery of the crime scene, but um, no, we'll just start with that. A woman named Candy Mosler, who has a big, fabulous blonde hairstyle and is rather young and beautiful, uh, enters an apartment uh, that she is sharing with her husband, Jacques. She discovers that he has been stabbed 39 times and covered with a blanket, that there are stab wounds even going through the blanket itself. He was stabbed from the outside of the blanket. Uh, his head has been bashed in by a heavy object. He's wearing only a white nightshirt. There's a hair in the palm of his hand, and there is a glass swan vase broken on the floor, which is presumably... Go ahead, yeah. I'd just like to pause here to say that I'd like to sit down with the set designer from this particular mm -hmm. and discuss what posh and high end and uh, exclusive and, you know, like I thought that it looked like um, the Howard Johnson's. Uh, it did. Yeah. Uh, efficiency suite and not like a really fabulous, uh, particularly remarkable uh, condo in Biscayne Bay or whatever. Yeah, it was a really lousy apartment. and I, It was they, tawdry, they, yeah. That was they, a tacky little apartment for them to be calling the exclusive high tone. The, even the numbers on the door were sort of those little peel and paste coal sticker numbers that said, you know, 2D or whatever above the doorbell. It was like, this is not a nice apartment building. Like, but they did later make some mention of the fact that we're going to discover that Jacques Mosler is actually from Houston and that he was spending time down here in Florida for work-related reasons. And he had strange ideas around, he was very wealthy, but he, he budgeted pretty stringently in certain areas. And I thought maybe that was it. Like maybe he didn't spring for a nice apartment. because Candy wouldn't have home. stayed in that apartment. Yeah. You're right. That's a good point. So also discovered in the apartment by the police, two highball glasses on the counter, one with three cigarette butts in it. They're able to lift a palm print off the kitchen counter as well. And that is the only print that is found. And uh, that's an interesting note. Like, does that mean everything else in the apartment had been wiped clean? That's a good point. Like, I or, thought that was a really interesting sort of point. The only print that was found. So not on the doorknob, not on the door, not on the murder weapon, not on the broken um, swan, not on anything else in the apartment, but just the handprint. I thought that was a really odd note. It might have just been, yeah, he neglected to wipe it down. And part of it was it suggested he had shared, whoever the killer was, had shared a drink with Jacques. And so didn't realize he had touched the counter in the commission of taking that drink or setting the glass down getting ready to kill him i don't know maybe um, i just i found it really odd and if he showed up at the house wearing gloves that would have been really odd too anyway we'll get back to that as we get into more of the details of the crime so they begin to interview the neighbors in the apartment three or four total they all say that around the time of 2 a.m there was a sound of a struggle in the apartment there was also the sound of a barking dog, and one of the neighbors shouted down to um, uh, for Jacques to quiet down the dog. Do uh, something about that dog! Right, and shortly thereafter, he this same neighbor hears a male voice say, No, don't do that to me! So uh, I, I guess he didn't inquire further because the guy had already quieted down the dog, and he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to let sleeping dogs lie. But uh, I think if I had heard... You know, I would have called the police myself if I had heard somebody in my building say, no, don't do that to me. But it doesn't sound like they did. It sounds like Candy was the one to discover the body and make the call. Well, they went to the door and knocked and tried to raise like they actually really more intervened more directly than just calling the police. But then the dog went. Nobody came to the door and the dog got quiet. And the so they said, well, quiet, all right. right. You know, maybe he was talking about to the dog, maybe whatever, but they just sort of, mm -hmm. they decided that because things had quieted down, that they would just leave it right. and went back Absolutely. to their apartment. So th there was some level of intervention, but, but when the dog went quiet, they, they dropped back out. Right. So it's time for the detectives to interview Candace Mosler, otherwise known as Candy Mosler. She's Jock's wife. Uh, they take her into an interview room, and she claims she was at the hospital all night getting treatments for her migraines. Uh, they check with the hospital, and the timeline of her alibi checks out. She went to the hospital with the children to get a shot at about 2.06 a.m., and then she left at 4.05 a.m. 
Um, now it's time to look into what kind of man Jacques Mosler was. He was in financing. He was a ruthless businessman. Part of his job involved seizing people's cars, homes, and businesses if they defaulted on their loan payments. Uh, his enemies were legion. And Candy is more than willing to talk about all of these potential enemies and, and all the things Jacques did in business. Apparently, yeah, he must have been like in payday loans or something. They called it a bank, but this sounds much more shady than that. This sounds more like brass knuckles collections. You know what I mean? Right. Like this sounded really dreadful and people really hated him. Yeah. However, back home in Houston, they were considered royalty in Houston society. Of course, in order to consider them royalty, you would have to care about Houston society in the first place. But the people who did apparently thought that. So whatever it is, it was earning them a lot of money. They said he was worth $33 million, which in 1964 must have been a really unbelievable amount of yeah. money. That's a lot. Yeah, you could buy that a 20-room house for $100,000. So, like, you know, that must have been... 33, mil 33 million must have been, I don't know, 500 million. I have no idea, but a considerably, a, an enormous amount of money. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So now the special uh, goes along with the detectives as they take a deeper dive into who Candace Mosler actually is. She married young. She had a few kids from a previous marriage that fell apart. She became a model, and she responded to the financial realities of divorce by opening her own business, which was a modeling agency and finishing school. Which I think I should do. Don't you think I should open a modeling agency and a finishing school and become I, independent I, I and wealthy? Don't you think that would be great? A finishing no. school. No, you're you're not supposed to be the one who finishes people off. Fini I think finishing school, you know, reading them for filth may be your definition of finishing in this instance. <laughs> no, I just proper behavior. What, what is it? Pro pro oh, proper, proper behavior. behavior and comportment. I think I could really enforce some rules. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at rule enforcement. Are you? Okay, as long as they're your rules. Um, well, that's how finishing school would work. It wouldn't be somebody else's fucking rules at my finishing school, or you really would be finished. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't have a life size picture of that. I, I do, however, think it would be fun for you to meet somebody while fundraising for the opera fund who was really wealthy, who then married you, because that's what happened with Candy and Jacques. That would be great. Jacques had also been through a nasty divorce, and his ex had taken him for a pretty penny, which sounds like the story a bad husband says after he's had a bad divorce with his wife. <laughs> she took me for everything I was yeah, worth. Chris uh, Rock says that every time they point a microphone at him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, he also has kids, Jacques Mosler. Um, so they, when they get married, they have a blended family. She has her two kids from a prior marriage. He has four by a prior marriage, and then... They adopted four kids in addition to that, just so the they would have to deal with children. each other as little as possible. Apparently. An enormous number of kids in between us to absorb the blows we want to throw in each other's direction. I guess, although they seem to have been for a while quite an idyllic couple, but then health problems kind of ended up in some way as beginning an estrangement between the two of them, right? They, they did in a way, but something happened first that was like, huh. Which I don't know that, that that was first. According to my notes, it was first, but maybe it wasn't. Um, do you want to say what you're talking about? No, you about go answer? ahead. No, go okay. ahead. Um, Candy's sister apparently called her and said, will you take in my son, Melvin? Melvin was 22 years old and kind of directionless in life I think is a flattering way of putting it um, he uh, 
And it was around this time. Okay, so this is, it says in 1962, Jacques Mosler suffered some medical problems, including respiratory failure. Now, I don't right. know, what, it, what, it, what is that a stroke? Like, what is respiratory failure? Your lungs simply stop working? I, I don't know. What I the would guess condition. so. I mean, I think yeah. that that's, you know, part of what kills people from COVID. Uh, you know, like, yeah. you, he was having, he was bad sick, like maybe yeah. even going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, And yeah, went for the cure, went to Europe to take the cure. Uh, He's away for the better part of a year. And when he comes back, he's like a whole new man. And he says, ocean air is better for him. So I'm going to start spending time down in Miami, Key Biscayne, where we opened in the company apartment, which according to your design sense is not really befitting a man of Jacques' wealth and success. No, that was a different apartment. Oh, right. Okay. The corporate okay. apartment and the governor's house are two different places. Right. That's right. Because I remember where we're headed now. Yeah. Um, Candy says, now this is all stuff she's saying to the police, right? We're still basically in Candy's first interrogation about the murder that opened the episode. And she says, around this time, Jacques' personality changed and he made new male friends. He would meet strange men and invite them back to his apartment for, and I'm quoting now, late night conversations. She also said she didn't want to air the family's dirty laundry in public. But. But. You didn't hear it from me, but. My husband was acting like a homosexual. So he's living in, this is, you're right, this is the two different apartments thing. He's living in a small apartment above one of his offices with a fellow named Vincent Calderone? Is that how they said his last name? Let's go name? with that. Yeah, Toblerone. Vincent, <laughs> Vincent Toblerone, inventor of the famous hotel candy bar. Right. Vincent is an employee of the bank and a much younger man. I'm hearing the buzzwords all over the place. Uh-huh. And he wasn't paying rent. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Mm-hmm, and he had mm-hmm. originally met um, Mr. Uh, uh, Mosler in Houston mm-hmm. and Mosler moved him to the apartment in um, Florida and then moved to the apartment in Florida where he lived with Mr. Toblerone. Right. <laughs> Which you got to think is a little bit suspicious. But do, and then there was Vincent's cover story for why this happened. They said when the office moved him, to Florida, he took a pay cut, so he insisted on a furnished apartment as part of the deal, and that's why they were living together. Because Which what is I would negotiate the is the cheesiest story right. I ever heard. <laughs> why would he move to Florida for a pay cut and having to stay with your boss on a regular basis if you guys and sleep were not on the doing sofa this. because there's right. only one bedroom at the apartment? I think that story was bullshit. So he claims he was home in bed alone at the time of Jacques' murder. They don't find anything substantial or or evidence-based to connect him to the murder. And their summation of this, which comes to us through the commentators giving interviews, is it just produced a lot of ugly rumors. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still still feeling the ugly rumor. Like, A, they're not that ugly. And B, those rumors have not been disproved by anything you presented. I'm still not seeing any sort of disproof of those rumors. It seems kind of like, okay, that could be a thing. Yeah. Um. Now they begin investigating the statement of one of the residents at the apartment that a white Chevrolet left the premises shortly after what they now know to be the time of the murder. So they, they saw a looking, man leave uh-huh. and, and he drove away in a white Chevrolet. Um, so they are able, I believe, to connect the white Chevy to Jacques company, that it's actually a company car. Um, it's a repo. It's a repo. That's it. Because if the company repoed your car, Candy got to drive it for a while. It was like the Candy Car Service. Miss a payment, right? Candace Mosler gets your white Chevy. So this is when the special turns into where was the white Chevy and when, which was maybe not my favorite part of the hour of television. <laughs> but let me see if I can get through this without boring everybody by just reading my notes. So the car, they go to the car manager for the company who is a, a black man named Roscoe Brown. He was the family's fixer. They don't really emphasize what that means in detail. And he says, oh, yeah, I delivered that white Chevy to Candy in Miami six days before the murder. 
Candy says, oh, I returned that car to the company three days before the mom- before the murder. And wouldn't you know it, the company has no official record of where the car went or what happened to it. And nobody knows where it is at this moment in time when they're conducting this investigation. So the police put out an APB and they find it at the airport. And this was when they de- Roscoe delivered the car to Candy as she was returning from a trip to the Bahamas with... Wait for it, Melvin. Candy's troubled nephew, who they have decided to take in and give a job and some sort of, you know, guidance and mentorship to. And we're about to find out what that really means. So they begin investigating Melvin. They discover he had some trouble in his youth. And that's part of why Candace's sister asked her to take him in and have Jacques give him a job. They were supposed to be grooming him to become a manager in the business. And Apparently, according to some people close to them, they were all becoming very close, like a family, a gross one. Um, Police in Houston are also investigating the relationship of Melvin to the family, and they've learned that there was a confrontation where Jacques called the police to have Melvin removed from the house. And the gossip is that Jacques discovered that Melvin was banging his wife, who, oh, by the way... Also, his aunt by blood. Let that yeah. sink in for a second. That was pretty creepy, but I found yeah. it really interesting that subsequent to throwing him out of the house and firing him from the firm and disinheriting him, Melvin then went to the Bahamas with uh, Candy while um, Jock stayed at the apartment in uh, in in florida i thought that was really like what an odd wrinkle in the timeline if you throw a man out of the family for having an affair with your wife and fire him from the firm do you then pay for him to go on a vacation with the family to the bahamas without comment right i just thought that was really odd right Um, Apparently, the servants at the mansion in Houston all knew what was going on. And apparently, the way Jacques found out is he read Candy's diary. Yeah. I'm like, wow, you would write all that in your diary? That's really stupid. It seems really not a very bright choice. And was all of this stuff from Candy's diary, do you remember, all of the salacious details about their affair that Candy apparently said to Melvin, I'll sleep with you, but first you must have four surgeries. It was like a soothsayer giving a prophecy. Right? It was like something from uh, the grim, very grim fairy tales. Um, (laughs) Grimcest. Right. He had to be circumcised. presents vivid videos, (laughs) grimcest. Um, he had to be circumcised, which I have I have been told as an adult is a formidable and painful surgery. Uh, it must surgery. be unbelievably painful. He had to have his ears pinned to the sides of his head, which is actually something I've considered doing later in life. Um, he, he had a rough complexion and it had to be smooth, which they rattle off like it's just something you do with like a loofah or something. But it was apparently surgery. And he had to have his tonsils taken out so that he didn't snore. And then... Then the thing that she found most compelling about him was that he was great at oral sex. And that, so the one thing that none of those things would have any impact on, and it would be harder to hold on to his ears. <laughs> That's true. And we are then treated to a true crime TV club first, which is a reenactment on a commercial television true crime series of oral sex being performed in a semi-suggestive um, strategic camera yeah, angle really kind of way. It's really mostly just her face. It's the sort of, it's yeah. the midnight cowboy oral sex uh, <laughs> film technique. Uh, okay. So uh, the airport personnel tell them that the day before the murder, Melvin, in fact, paid cash for a flight from Houston to Miami and that he flew back Seven hours after. I think this was the day and age where airports were small enough that people who worked there could have some memory of who had actually passed through them in the course of a day. <laughs> Not going to happen today. Or maybe yeah, now. Yeah, because he paid the cash, pandemic. so there's no other record. The cops investigate bars and restaurants on the causeway between Miami and Key Biscayne, and they find that Melvin went to a club called, and I'm not making this up, The Stuffed Shirt. I just loved that. That was maybe yeah. one of my favorite details. Right. Where he sat that it's at the still bar. there. 
right next to Philip Marlowe and had a drink and talked about dames. Um, he went there twice. And then went to Joe's Crabs. Right, Joe's Stone Crabs. So Melvin showed up at the stuffed shirt twice on the night of the murder. Oh, and guess what? The palm print, it turns out to be Melvin's, the one they lifted from the kitchen counter that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. You know, and this is just when Candy decides she has to leave Miami and go to the Mayo Clinic. Her headaches are so intense, she needs some more aggressive treatment, and she can't have it done in Miami. And, um, oh, by the way, the cops also discover Candy had a massive prenuptial agreement, and that if she divorced Jacques, she wouldn't get a dime. She'd get $200,000. She would get $200,000, which Which compared to $33 million is is, not a dime. yeah. Yeah. It's not a dime. I mean, it's a dime. It's a dime. I don't want to. It's a bunch of dimes, but it's not as many dimes (laughs) as Candy wanted and as were available from, you know, Jacques' overall piggy bank. Available dimes, a crime to remember. Okay. So they decide that they need to get some more details about the white Chevy and where it was and when. So they call Roscoe, the car manager, back in, and he says, I guess he says now and didn't say before. I don't know if this was under duress or if he cracked it. Um, the day Mr. Mosler was murdered, Candy Mosler drove the white Chevy. And so he yeah, they just didn't ask him before, plan. I think, is what happened. They, wow. She said she returned it and they didn't ask him if he'd re- if she'd returned it. And he said, no, she drove it the day of the murder. Yeah. So they decided to check in with the hospital where Candy claimed to be for most of the night on the night of the murder. And the nurse says, yes, yeah, she was here and her timeline checks out, as I said before. But she got three phone calls here, which I, I just think is sort of like turning the office ER into your personal switch. Right. Don't you love that? The hotel yeah. um, uh, hospital treatment where they answer the field phone messages for you. I'm just going to get some shots and roll some calls. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, the cops take this as evidence that she was in communication with whoever was committing the murder. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So Candace Mosler is charged with the murder of her husband, Jacques. And in 1966, the trial begins, and it is a sensation. I'm telling you. Yeah, it is. I'm surprised I didn't remember it. I was only six. (laughs) You seem like the kind of six-year-old that could have absorbed all of these details rather well. Totally. I just think it wasn't, I wasn't exposed to the details, or I think I might well have remembered it. Uh, it begins with a surprise witness by the name of Billy Mulvey, and he says that Candy and Melvin approached him to solicit a hit on Jacques. They offered, or they did pay him $7,000, but they also promised him an additional $3,000 and never gave it. However, Billy Mulvey is one of six people who say they were offered money to kill Jacques Mosler by Candy and Melvin. Prosecutors allege that Melvin flew into Miami at 6 p.m. Candace picked him up in the white Chevy. Mel goes to kill time at the stuffed shirt. At 1.30 a.m., Candy and her kids go to the hospital because Candy's having her migraine and needs treatment. Fifteen minutes later, Melvin arrives at the apartment complex, kills Jacques. The explanation of the crime scene is that Jacques was sleeping. He had only a nightshirt on, and so he threw a blanket over himself to go see whoever was at the door. And that is why the stab wounds are through the blanket because he was, it was not thrown over the body. When they say it at the beginning, it makes it sound like the killer was so full of rage. He covered up the body and was like, 10 or 15 more. I just got to get it out of my system. Um, 
the dog the explanation of what the neighbors heard becomes that the dog was out on the terrace and when the murder begins to happen it starts barking the neighbors yell to shut up the dog melvin shuts up the dog right he goes and deals with that so that it doesn't attract any more attention he washes his hands in the sink which because this was the age before cold case files when all killers now know you do not clean up at the murder scene because it leaves dna everywhere that is when he left the palm print it doesn't answer your original question i guess like maybe he was so freaked out from having just commit the murder that he didn't but i mean he wiped everything else down probably if there were no prints on it I've got a million questions. We'll okay, come well, back we're about to, to wrap. You know, this is I do all the fact stuff, and then we right, get into the the Eric of it all, as we all love it. Right. Um, so the phone calls at the hospital. That's Melvin calling to say um, the job's been done. You Maybe know, Jacques is dead. Maybe uh, Melvin washes his hands. I already said that part. He leaves in the white Chevy. He makes the phone call. That's the prosecution's case right there. So Candy hires a. A colorful um, attorney named Percy Foreman. I mean, Percy and he's he's my attorney. I, he really gets in there. So Percy zeroes in on the fact that there was a hair discovered in Jacques' hand, and it doesn't match Candy's or Melvin's. And Foreman also tries to turn the jury against Jacques because. Jacques was such a bastard and was so quick to repossess people's prized possessions if they missed one payment that there was an endless number of people more than willing to kill him, apparently. It's the same case that Candy makes in her initial interview with the detectives. Foreman also eviscerates Mulvey, the would-be assassin, puts him on the stand and um, tears him apart and brings up his criminal record and basically destroys his character as a, as a witness. And points and- out that they just don't have any evidence of this crime other than that palm print. Mm-hmm. And the jury agreed because Candy and Melvin are found not guilty. So to wrap things up, before we get into the counterpoint of it all, if you will, right. Candy and Melvin manage to stay together for a year and then they break up as aunts and nephews often do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. Her about sister came down and said, I have just about had it with you two. <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh. You give him a million dollars and we're leaving. Exactly. Mel goes on to become a real estate developer in Houston and he died in 2010. So he went on to live a long life with his smooth skin, his pinned ears, his circumcised penis, and his aunt ex-girlfriend. Uh, Candy took over Jacques' business and tripled his fortune and she died in 1976 of, and I'm quoting the title that came up on the end of the screen, an overdose of migraine medication. And that are the facts as they were presented. So she really did have migraines or at least had medication for them. Uh Um, All right, Eric, let her rip. I just think that if that was the case, this is if, if the case that they brought against them was the truth, then that was the stupidest crime in the history of crime. Like why pay somebody $7,000, but not the other three after hiring him (laughs) to do the murder that doesn't like. And so then you do it yourself rather than pay him the other $3,000 when you have millions to go, you know what I mean? It just, Mm -hmm. that was, and offer it to six other people and still not, you know, and still decide to do it yourself. And then why, make this big show of flying all the way back, showing up at a public place, having her hand him off the car, all right. of that other stuff. And then he comes to the house. Why does he have to knock on the door? If Candy has met him, why didn't she just give him a key to the apartment so he could go right. in and stab him to death in the bed? And then those cigarette butts, what were all those cigarette butts? So he came in, smoked three or four cigarettes, put him out, had some drinks, put him out in a drink and then stabbed him to death and mm-hmm. beat him to death with, the glass thing everything about this just doesn't make any sense they may well have been guilty of this crime but Mm -hmm. this is not the crime they committed i don't know what happened but it wasn't this the strangest thing is the dog like Mm -hmm. whoever was able either the dog was not very as vicious as the one they chose it was kind of a scary. It was like, like a German, German shepherd, shepherd that they kept but it showing. May have yeah. been, but it may have been a Pekingese. You know, I don't know what kind of dog <laughs> it was. 
Um, but if they do was, usually it, pick actors who are more attractive than the subjects. Maybe they pick dogs that are more great. It was like, oh, we can't go with a Shih Tzu here. We need a German Shepherd. But like, if it was a German Shepherd, if it was a vicious dog, then it needed to be somebody who knew the dog who mm-hmm. could bring it in and quiet it down. If it was just a little yappy dog, you know, they brought it in and gave it a bowl of cream and uh, and left. I just found like, why would he have to knock on the door? Why would yes. he not have a key? Why would he not stab him in the bed? How was he doing in the living room? Who had the drinks? Who had the, And why were there no fingerprints anywhere in the apartment? Uh-huh. She could right. have driven that car. They could have had a tryst, which is why he flew into town. He met her for drinks there. They went out, They went to the motel. They had a wing dang do. She gave him the car to take back to the airport, and she took a cab home because she had cars there and he was just going to leave the car at the airport. She was going to send Roscoe for it later. And then the murder happens and whatever, or they were, they were setting up to be each other's alibi while the person, some other, the, the eighth person who they gave the whole 10,000 to actually did the murder. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole other host of things that could have happened. Well, to hear you talk about it, the events at the apartment really do suggest to me somebody going to the apartment who did not plan to kill anybody. They suggest an escalation. The lack of preparation, I had a drink, I had a highball with him. The dog was in a place that wasn't necessarily the best place to put a dog if I was going to kill him. It suggests that like someone came over for a meeting that got out of control. The fact that the victim had the time to shout, no, 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 don't do that to me. Like you were saying, if you're really there to assassinate someone, you sneak up on them in bed. You use a key, you break in, you do any of these things. But none of that, this was like somebody. So what do you, do you think this was like a gay boyfriend or a gay lover who went over there to confront him about something? It could have been an enemy. It could have been somebody they hired to kill him. It could have been him. He might have gone there to try and get his place back at the bank and lost his temper and cool and kill the guy. I don't know what happened, but I don't think anything that what the prosecution claimed is what happened. It just doesn't fit the facts. Yeah. It doesn't I, it's the, make it's sense. The stuff shirt. And the phone calls. The, yeah. The stuff shirt it's, is like, yeah, I, I don't. Why fly into town in a not un- secretive way? He could have driven from Houston, you right. know, and murdered him and then driven back to Houston. Like, it's not like. Europe or something, he could have gotten there in a way that would have been more secretive than something really public um, so that it was clear that he was present in town for the... Why be present in town for the crime and not in any way circumspect about it if you're then going to commit a murder when you don't want to be convicted of it? They did... If they, if these two people who are capable of tripling the fortune and becoming real estate developers, so they're not morons... um, Right, they're that's not, a good thing. Right, that's the thing. You it's know, like some of you just why would they do a they crime? Are, but that suggests they're not. Why yeah. would they do a crime this stupid? Right, like this is a stupid crime. This is mm-hmm. either a crime of passion or a really stupid crime, or one that was committed by somebody who was so good at it that they didn't leave a trace of themselves behind. No fingerprints, none, except a palm print, which could have been left there on the sink anytime, and might not have gotten wiped down because the guy didn't put his hand there right and that's that explains that that explains that and so do you think the palm print was maybe he had had a secret meeting with candy at the apartment when he wasn't there when a jock wasn't he there went he, to, he went with candy to the bahamas they may already have yeah. made it up by then like I, one of the things i considered was that he was sleeping with both of them and when jocks found out that he was sleeping with candy too mm-hmm. um that he that that's when he threw him out of the house, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole host of other possible possibilities here that I, you know, like particularly good at oral sex, like, well, maybe he, that was because he wasn't a particular big participant in the other main event. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like I have no idea, but none of those other aspects of this, this case were covered. And I just didn't find any of this completely uh, very compelling. And neither did the jury. Because they yeah. said they didn't, they, they were, they at least didn't prove that they did it. They mm-hmm. may have hired somebody. They may actually physically have done it, but I don't think anybody proved it. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 
Yeah, that uh, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. I was I I think I was most put off by the the speed with which they left the gay angle, as if that one interview with that one man. Oh well, that just ties it all up, you know. And I think that they, it didn't really. And, and well, I think they I think, then. But I think the sequence of events in the special was then meant to apply that Jock would never have been as angry about Candy's affair as he was throwing Melvin out of the house if if he was gay. Like, he would have just let it happen. But they were related. I think she started sleeping with him while he was in Europe because she didn't. they made a point out of saying that she didn't go to Europe mm-hmm. with him. He went there on his own, and then he came back and moved to Bis- uh, to, to Florida. And, yeah. she, and she was still there. And so I think it was sometime in that period when whatever happened between the two of them happened... Right. That seemed to me they weren't clear on that timeline either. I would like to have known that. And it wasn't really included um, in the in the overall picture. The other thing that I think is worth noting is that particularly then, but in general, um, straight overall straight driv- uh, culture does not necessarily take gayness into consideration. No. In in analyzing a situation it's right it's often something that that nobody considers as a possibility and it can even work as a cover but in this case the guy said oh no that he was just a cheapskate i was sleeping on the sofa and there was nothing between us and i just decided to take a huge pay cut and move here to live in this shitty one-bedroom apartment and sleep on the sofa with my boss mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's that's a convincing story right but if you're right. not looking for it then it's then you don't see it Right. Absolutely. It seems like more was going on than we were aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that was a smooth mic grab there. Eric Shaw Quinn working with the new microphone stand. I wish you guys could have seen that. Yes, absolutely. Kicked over the microphone. I'm still recording and it still says blue snowball and it's still plugged in with the red light. So I don't think I've destroyed our podcast, but you never know. We had the experience on a recent episode with a more recent case of being able to watch the TV version of it and then get the updates on it from the news media and seeing firsthand how much was left out and how much the leaving the the excerpting, if you will. Did you shift this one up? I didn't look this one up, but this is the kind of case where it's like, there's a book out there. I have done that right along with True Crime TV Club. Like, I've gone and seen after we do the episode, is there a nonfiction book about this that's considered roughly definitive? And I have, like, all of these. I have a book about the Matamoros cult murders, which is the murder of Mark Kilroy, one of the more disturbing episodes we did. And I uh-huh. someday, um, but Vicky, remember we did the murder of Vicky, I forget her last name, but the Alfred Bloomingdale case that was a big scandal oh, right, here. Yeah. Right. All of this. And I want to dive into them you know, eventually, but I, I think you're right. I think there are more aspects of this because I always tell the story, our friend, John Morgan Wilson, who's a writer who was into a TV production and would do sort of shows like this. And he said, he went down to investigate one of these cases once to do their episode of it. And he had researched a major news shows version of the case. And he said, I don't know what they were looking at. I mean, it's like, they just saw a completely different story from what we saw. I, I was right. like, I, they just refuse, and it's like you refuse to talk to certain people. I think sometimes, like this is always my, I'm reading the tea leaves, but like the producer says, okay, so Candy Mosler was really rich and, uh, you know, the sentiment in the culture right now is really kind of anti-capitalist. So we want to make it out to look like, we want to give the audience the sense and that she, she was, was really And she was sleeping guilty. with her nephew. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the hotsy-totsy center of this story. Sex and money sells, and this was all about sex and money she was sleeping with her nephew that was never disputed absolutely well in the time we have left there's there's sort of a procedural announcement that i haven't made recently that i probably should which is if you are eric shaw quinn will be leaving the dinner i'm just kidding if you are enjoying what you're hearing we would love it if you left us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice reviews are very important to podcasts they help our visibility Um, and we are very grateful and appreciative. And if you want to communicate with us about our episodes, we interact with people on the Facebook page for The Dinner Party Show. TDPS stands for The Dinner Party Show, which was our flagship effort here at the TDPS Network. And 
Hundreds of episodes are available to uh, download and listen to all the time. It was a a very successful comedy variety show that we did absolutely forever. And I still listen to and laugh out loud. So I totally recommend it to you if you haven't heard it before. And you've got, you know, let's say you were going to be home for a really long and extended period of time (laughs) with not a lot to do. Um, You might want to tune into the Dinner Party Show and listen to some of those older episodes because they're from a happier time. We didn't know it at the time, but yeah, they were a happier time. I think that part of it too is like you have to get past the not report in the beginning because our, we always open the show with a not report, which is what we were not going to talk about. And they're, that's very news driven and headline based. So if you're hearing us yell about Mitt Romney, <laughs> that's because, but once you get past that, we get into the sketch comedy and the interviews. The interviews were fun. You were, you enjoyed the interviews of when we I enjoyed people. doing the interviews. We met a lot of really fabulous, interesting people. It was great. It's a great uh, roster of, of interviews. In fact, there's some uh, clip show versions that are just yeah. the interviews that you you just want to listen to. A lot of celebrity interviews. Jackie, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we were the last, if not close to being the last interview um, that uh, that Jackie ever gave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Jackie Collins on our show. We had no idea that she was as sick with cancer as she was. And I'm going to say a few weeks after her appearance on our show, we heard that she had passed away. She had not publicly disclosed her diagnosis to people. She really said she didn't want sympathy and she felt sympathy weakens you. That was literally a quote from Jackie Collins. But she um, was uh, undergoing treatment and her family was aware of all of it. And so she had time with them. But yeah, that was so sad. I also think we might have been one of Patricia Nell Warren's last interviews. She was actually on her last broadcast of that incarnation of the show. She was um, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Lots of really Dan Savage came on. Armistead Mm -hmm. Maupin came on. Like it was really an amazing lineup of, of, of guests. And then uh, the, you know, the comedy stuff, I just think is some, it's just, uh, is just golden. I still laugh at, um, some of the, the outrageous nonsense that we got up to fake movie trailers and Mm -hmm. interview Jordan Ampersand getting up to what he got up to. And, Jordan Ampersand. Um, You hear his voice in our intro and outro for our recurring segment, What's Science? Uh, You heard him in the last episode. If you want to hear him actually say something besides, What? Science? um, You should check out the Dinner Party Show. Well, Eric Shaquin, any final thoughts? Um, Yes, I'm thinking that um, I need to find a new um, partner to do podcasts (laughs) with. Yeah, you have a procedural announcement. Yeah, um, no, uh, yeah. My my thoughts are that everything is fine, and that I'm life is the world is so full of a number of things. I am sure we shall all be as happy as kings. That's my final thought. Absolutely. Well, until next time, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.